welcome to Bridges Community Church. Our services will begin shortly, so whether you're joining us outside on the patio, inside our worship center, or online at home, grab a seat and prepare to enter into a time of worship. Today, we will be celebrating communion together. So if you're at home, take a moment right now to grab some juice and bread or a cracker and prepare for that time of communion. Before our service begins, we'd like to take a moment to let you know what's happening around the life of the church. Coming up on July 31st, we will have our annual uh, beach worship service down at Seabright Beach near Santa Cruz. So I want you to make plans right now, uh, July 31st. Do not come to this building the morning of July 31st and instead travel to Seabright Beach near Santa Cruz. We will have music. Um, a short message, and the, maybe the most important thing is time together as a church family, hanging out all afternoon, as long as you can make it into your schedule on Seabright Beach in Santa Cruz. Bring a lunch, bring a towel, bring some sunscreen, and come to Seabright Beach July 31st instead of coming here on Sunday morning. And for anyone who has not yet been baptized, one of the amazing things that we often do when we are down at Seabright Beach um, is have baptisms in the ocean. So if you have been waiting to be baptized, if you are a believer in Christ and have not been baptized since you became a believer, now's the time. We want to baptize you in the ocean down at Seabright Beach on July 31st. So make sure you get that into your schedule and we will see you there.
Yeah, praise God for that. Well, good morning and welcome to Bridges Community Church. We are so delighted to be together and worshiping today. Every day is a day that we get to worship God, and it's so amazing that we get to know a holy creator. I've just been so struck recently by the holiness of God and how perfect and set apart he is, yet he has drawn near to us. And I think that's something worth singing about. So today, let's carry that mindset within us that the God of all creation would come near and that he is deserving of our worship. Let's continue to sing together this morning. comes up to lead us in a time of prayer. Well, good morning. Good morning. In the uh, fourth and fifth grade class today, was, those are fourth and fifth graders who are here remember this, it was a remember and celebrate Sunday. I thought that was appropriate uh, on this holiday weekend, remember and celebrate, but what we were remembering and celebrating in Sunday school today was the Feast of Tabernacles. Anybody remember that one? The Feast of Booze? It was really a time to, when the Israelites got together to remember all of God's blessings. So we enumerated on the whiteboard all the blessings that God's given us. And as I thought about July 4th, it's a time to remember all the blessings we have in this country. So we tried to enumerate those as well. And you know, the freedom to speak, the freedom to be here this morning to worship, the freedom to gather. Um, many other freedoms we have in this country, but the best, the most important ones are the blessings that God gives us. And we get to exercise those because of the place that we live in a free way. Um, you might, I, I challenge you to go home today and just write those down. Blessings from God. They should 
outnumber the blessings from being in this country. But it is a time to remember and celebrate this weekend. And one of the things we get to do is speak, and I think we get to talk about change. And uh, just um, before we go to prayer, I want us to think about what's happened in our country in the last couple of weeks. The Roe v. Wade decision was, in a sense, reversed. And it's not over, but it's a, it's a time to think about the opportunities we have to share Christ are many. The opportunities to express how we feel about life are many. And it's been a multi-generation effort that's brought us to this point today where Roe v. Wade was overturned. But it's not done. So we can rejoice about the lives of unborn that are going to be spared because of this ruling. But also I think we need to balance that with the vulnerable people and think more of there's many vulnerable people too. It's not just the unborn, but there's women and families who are going through these challenging discussions about what to do. So we should remember them too today. We can rejoice, but I think as Christians it's our job to, be, to promote justice, to promote compassion, and to promote the love of Jesus in people's lives. And so as you celebrate God's blessings, let's share those with people we come across with and not just make this a time of celebrating what we have in our country a chance to overturn laws, a chance to be free to express ourselves, but we should be free to express who our Savior is and who we love. And that should be our primary thought today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for a country where we have freedom, freedom for many things, but also an opportunity to share who's most important in our life. You've been merciful to us. You've given us great blessings. Um, they're overflowing every day. We have an opportunity to show kindness to others because of the kindness that you showed us through your son, the sacrificial life that he lived, a holy God who sacrificed for us, and you love us through all our wrongdoings, and you show us mercy every day. May we do the same to others. Thank you for what's happened in our country for the unborn. Thank you for what can happen because of our ability to share your love with others. In your son's name, amen. Amen. Why don't you stand with us as we continue to sing to our God, uh, to Jesus, who is ours forevermore.
this. Come rejoice now, O my soul. Come rejoice now, O my soul, for his love is my reward. He is God and hope is sure. Christ is separate us from the love of God. Lord, we praise you for the good blessings you have poured out on us in this country, and we thank you for all the things that you're going to do. Lord, we look to you as the author, the king, the one in charge. We know you are on the throne, God. We praise you today and every day. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and have a seat, and at this time, we'd love to dismiss the elementary school students to go ahead and meet Miss Alba in the back. Thank you so much for worshiping with us this morning. Tell me uh, if you recognize any of these statements, um, if you've ever heard them or you've ever said them. Um, I didn't do anything wrong. You're the one that needs to apologize. Uh, sure, maybe I messed up a little, but it's nothing compared to what you did. 
Um, if people knew the full story, you are the one who would look bad. Um, the only reason I did what I did is because you weren't there for me, because you didn't give me what I need, because you acted the way that you acted. Um, my mistake was just a response to yours. So you are the real problem. Um, you know why that sounds familiar? You know why? Because we are in relationships with people. Uh, and people often do whatever it takes to justify themselves, to contend for their own innocence. People will twist facts. They will leave out incriminating details. They will appeal to other standards. They will grasp for any straw to try to wiggle out of guilt. Um, that's what people do. So if you are in a relationship with people, uh, you've seen it happen. Maybe you've even said those phrases yourself. Um, and it doesn't matter the type of relationship that you're in. It could be romantic, it could be parent-child, it could be friend, it could be coworker. Um, no one wants to be the reason that the relationship soured. So we will do anything to excuse ourselves or to pin blame on someone else. Uh, one of my good friends, uh, he's getting his PhD in biblical counseling. I know him from school. Um, but at his church, they have a, like a biblical counseling center attached to the church, like as a ministry of the church, which is pretty cool. So he runs the counseling center, and he's a pastor on staff at the church. And he told me, when a couple is getting divorced, and they are, and they are dividing up all the stuff, um, so they're not going to be able to work it out. They are, they are they're past that point. He said, usually, they can work through the logistics with lawyers relatively quickly, like who gets what assets, what to do with the house, generally fairly agreeable. Even when it comes to custody of the kids, the back and forth talking about who's going to get custody when is nothing compared to arguing about who is at fault for the divorce. He said the couple will fight until the end of time trying to put blame on the other person. They will drag that out forever. You believe that? I do. Um, we don't want to admit that we are wrong, that we have culpability. Like for the past many months, our news feeds have inundated us with updates on the uh, Johnny Depp, Amber Heard defamation trial. It's been kind of unavoidable to hear something about that, even if you're trying not to hear about it. And what was that lawsuit about? Why have the two of them gone through all the extensive effort to put together a case against the other person? It's about whose fault it was. It's about saving face. Just do anything to prove I wasn't wrong. Have you been in that kind of spot? Right? It's escalating some kind of blame spiral. Each side is maybe pulling up more and more past history just to prove they are the better person, right? Well, it all started when your mother... You know what we're talking about? You been there? Okay, now, when you're in one of those moments, what is the one thing that can immediately bring the temperature back down? Again, doesn't matter, parent-child, romantic interest, coworker, roommate, any relationship. What can one side say that will begin to melt the tension almost instantly? It's if someone says, I'm sorry. 
That's really all it takes. I'm sorry. And amazingly, for the most part, it doesn't usually matter how serious the offense was. Saying, I'm sorry, will do wonders to mend the brokenness. So think back to whoever it is who you've been really upset with. Don't think too hard. Uh, don't want anybody's blood pressure going off the chart this morning. But what if uh, that person came to you and said, I know I messed up. I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. If someone says that, you're immediately 90% of the way to reconciliation. Conversely, if they won't admit fault, or if they say something manipulative like, if I did something wrong, I'm sorry. Right, that's not an apology, that's just a clever way not to admit guilt. And then what happens to the relationship if someone won't admit fault? Depending on the circumstance, the relationship might be over right there. Or at a minimum, the connection between the two people begins to erode, right? Because maybe the two people can go back to their own corners and kind of try to forget about it, try to move on without dealing with it, cover it up, bury it deep, and maybe that works in the short term. But again, especially over time, if it happens again and again and again, there will be less and less and less of a relationship there. We've all experienced this. Saying, I'm sorry, restores intimacy. Refusing to say, I'm sorry, erodes intimacy. That is true for any relationship. So some free advice. If you have tension in one of your relationships right now, find something for which you can apologize. Something. Something specific. Something that really is your fault, that you really should have done differently. Even if you think you're only 3% of the blame and the other person is 99 or 97% at fault, say you're sorry for the 3% and don't bring up the 97%. But say that you are really sorry for what you did. It will make things better. It will help to restore intimacy. But again, if you dig your heels in, if you try to shift blame or make excuses even for your 3%, it will make it worse. It will be worse. That is how relationships work. We've all experienced that. Um, none of that is news to anybody here. You're not like, oh, I didn't know that I'm sorry builds intimacy. Maybe a good reminder for some of us, but it's not news. So question, would you expect your relationship with God to be any different? Do you think apology and repentance and saying that we're sorry should be a regular part of our relationship with God? If we want intimacy with him, it needs to be. Apology, repentance, admitting fault need to be a regular part of our relationship with him. There's actually many Christian traditions that recite a prayer of confession every week. It's in their liturgy. Something like, most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought and word and deed by what we've done, by what we've left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry. We humbly repent for the sake of your son, Jesus Christ. Have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. You might have grown up in a tradition that says something like that. There's many traditions that say something like that every week. And of course, it can just become routine and not mean anything to the person who's saying it, but I'm telling you, the regularity of it is important. Here at Bridges, we don't recite a liturgy, but we do sing. 
And we have intentionality behind the songs that we pick. Many of the songs we pick, not all of them, okay, because it's not the only thing we should sing about, but many of our songs mention our need for forgiveness, our sin, God's redemption of us. And that is true, you might have noticed, whether we're singing a more traditional song or a newer song, we pick ones, again, not all of them, but many of them that depict Christ's work on our behalf and our need for that work on our behalf, because admitting fault needs to be a regular part of of our spiritual lives. Why regular? Why do we need to say it often? Well, how often do you think your spouse should apologize to you? How often does your spouse think you need to apologize? Right? How often do you make your kids apologize? How often do you wish your boss would apologize? It's pretty frequent, right? If you have a healthy marriage, if you have a healthy family, if you have a healthy workplace, forgiveness should be asked for and granted all the time. There are all kinds of these micro offenses, right? You're irritated with the other person somehow, and then you have a choice, right? You can, you can try to ignore it and bury it, act like it's not a problem. That's not healthy. You could try to convince the other person they shouldn't be irritated, you know, like only a crazy person would let this something like this bother them, okay? That's not healthy. Or you can say, I'm sorry, right? Which path is going to build intimacy and which path is going to erode intimacy? In a healthy relationship, we should be saying, I'm sorry, all the time. Um, so do we want a healthy relationship with God? Do we want intimacy with God? Or do we want our relationship with God to look like Johnny Depp and Amber Heard? Right? We need to say, I'm sorry. Need to say it a lot. Right? If you're someone who says, I'm so, I, I never need to say I'm sorry because I'm always right. Okay? That, that's a sign something's wrong. That's not a sign of health. Health would be saying sorry a lot. All right, so the psalm that we're looking at today, Psalm 130, is a psalm of repentance. Um, psalm 130 is in a collection of psalms classified as psalms of ascent because the Israelites would sing these psalms on their way up to Jerusalem for various festivals. And most likely, the Israelites would journey to Jerusalem for three different festivals every year. One of them was Feast of Booths that Brad mentioned earlier. But the festivals, of course, are times of celebration. It's like, you know, we're going to have fireworks like we'll have tonight or tomorrow. The festivals commemorated God's bringing them out of slavery or providing for them in the desert, God blessing them with another harvest. They were joyous times, um, like Thanksgiving is for us. But as part of the journey to the celebration, they would take time to sing about their need for mercy. Um, they would sing, like we do, about their guilt, and they would sing about their need for forgiveness, which in terms of timing, we, we might say, that sounds odd to us. We might say, if we're having a joyous celebratory festival, like, let's not bring up our guilt and spoil the vibe we got going on right now. Like, it's hard to talk about my guilt and look at fireworks at the same time. Let's just keep everything happy and light. That's what we might think. But that would be a mistake, right? We should learn from these ancient people. Again, if we want intimacy with God, we need to bring up our wrongdoing, our guilt, say that we're sorry, and we need to do it often because that's what health would be. 
Okay, all of that was intro. Long intro today, shorter message, just trying to prep us so that we don't resist the need for repentance, apology. I'd love for us to come to this text like motivated, believing, like, yeah, it's a good thing to say I'm sorry. I need to say it a lot. That's a sign of health. Saying I'm sorry is not a sign that something's wrong. Even if we say I'm sorry a lot, something is not wrong if we say it a lot. Actually, something is right if we say I'm sorry a lot, healthy. And that's what we'd want, I'd assume, in all of our relationships. We want health, right? So are we sufficiently prepped? Apology equals intimacy. We want intimacy. Ap apology, repentance is good, healthy, wonderful. Okay, our text. As we study Psalm 130, we'll see the need for repentance, the assurance of acceptance, the prize of repentance, and the cost of redemption. The need for repentance, the assurance of acceptance, the prize of repentance, and the cost of redemption. So don't worry, we'll go relatively quickly, and we'll still finish right on time. So first, uh, the need for repentance is universal. All of us, every single one of us, need to admit our guilt and failings before God in a repentant kind of way. No need to belabor this point, but we'll just let the word of God speak, and I'll pray that it doesn't return void from you. At the beginning of this passage, the psalmist is quite distressed. He says, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Hear my voice. Be attentive to my pleas for mercy. So we know something is wrong, but at this point, we don't know what the nature of his grief is. Then it all becomes clear in verse 3 when he specifies if you, O Lord, should mark inequities, O Lord, who could stand? So we find out he is grieved by his sin. That's what's causing his grief. He's acknowledging his wrongdoing, and he is broken up about it. But he shows us it's not just him who has this problem. It's universal. We all have the same problem. O Lord, if you should mark inequities, who could stand? There's actually several different answers to that question, which we'll talk about as we move along today. But the first answer is none of us. None of us would be able to pass judgment. None of us would be able to stand before God. That's not to say that we have zero goodness in us. It doesn't mean like we are entirely rotten or anything like that. But we all have guilt before God. And which of us could stand before him? First answer, not me, not this guy right here, and not you. Now, my experience, uh, which certainly isn't authoritative, I'm just telling you what I've seen. When people hear that they have guilt before God, they either are immediately on board and say, like, yep, no doubt about it, I cannot set right what I've broken between me and God. That's some people. It's one reaction, just throw themselves on the mercy of the court. Other reaction, people push back and they say, well, sure, maybe there's some guilt, maybe but certainly I have more good than bad. I'm way better than other people, and I'm getting better. So they kind of hem and haw. They basically try to say that they could stand before God, or partially. Those are two reactions. Either, yep, I'm a mess. Without mercy and forgiveness, I have no hope. Or, yeah, maybe I need a little mercy, but not much. And I just want to warn you here. Serious warning. If you think you are a Christian but you've skipped the part about admitting guilt before God. You aren't where you think you are. 
Just like in our relationships, if someone has wronged you, if someone has really wronged you, but they just want to skip past it, act like everything's okay, you can't have intimacy with that person. It's impossible. They have created a gap between you and them because they refuse to admit there's a problem. Now, it would be easily mendable, right, if they just apologize, but unless they admit they messed up and they're genuine about it, right, there, there is no way to be deeply connected to them again. You'll always have some amount of gap. We understand that in our relationships. So if you have skipped that part with God, and you're like, oh, I love God, and he loves me, without acknowledging there's these ongoing inequities and kind of having a repentant posture before God, you aren't as connected as you think you are. That's the warning. Okay, second, the assurance of acceptance is guaranteed. Acceptance is guaranteed. When we repent to God, our acceptance is guaranteed. You know why we resist saying that we are wrong? Because we believe that admitting that we are wrong will lead to rejection. We believe we need to be right in order to be accepted, in order to be loved, in order to have value, in order to be appreciated, especially in this area, Silicon Valley. We tie our value and worth if we are accepted. We tie that to being right, into proving other people wrong. That's how we try to establish ourselves here, being right, being better. And so we think if we admit that we are wrong, our acceptance, our very worth then is in jeopardy. Like now it's up to the other person. We've lost control. They will decide whether or not to receive us just how we are, like flaws and all. And that is scary. That is risky. We fear that they will reject us if we admit our flaws. The psalmist seems to make the same point here when he writes verse 4, with you, God, there is forgiveness and therefore you are to be feared. It might seem odd to us that he says there's fear along with the potential of forgiveness. But what he's saying is the choice is God's, whether I'm forgiven or not. My acceptance is out of my hands. I've messed up. I can't make up for it. I have no excuse for what I did. And now it's up to you what happens next. That's scary because we have no control. That's why we don't want to admit that we are wrong, even in our earthly relationships. But the psalmist here seems to talk himself out of that fear by the promise, the assurance, the guarantee of God's acceptance. Look, verse 7 and 8, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his inequities. He knows, the psalmist knows, his inequities do not negate God's love. So his acceptance is not in jeopardy, and he can confess his sins easily. Yeah, the ball's in God's court, whether I am forgiven or not. It's not up to me. I can't earn my way back in. I'm totally at his mercy, but that's okay. I'm not worried, because with God, there's steadfast love, as it's translated here. It's like the song we just sang, like, fear is gone, hope is sure, Christ is mine forevermore, right? His love for me has has held me without fear. The word that many of you might be familiar with is hesed. God's hesed. That's his steadfast love is how it's translated here. The children's book that we read with our boys translates hesed as God's never stopping, never giving up, always and forever love. 
God's never stopping, never giving up, always and forever love. So the psalmist has complete confidence. Even though he has these inequities, he is still accepted, loved, valued. We have got to get over this idea, which is especially potent in this area, but we have got to get over it, that we must be good or right in order to be accepted or valued or loved. That's just false. The psalmist has inequities such to the extent that he cannot stand before God. He has, he has massive inequities. He's crying out from the depths because of his inequities. So he's like, he's a total mess. And yet, at the same time, he says, the Lord has steadfast love for me. The Lord will redeem these inequities. So the Lord does not love him, does not redeem him because he's somehow good. He just said he isn't good, but he's still loved and he's still redeemed. So please do not equate being good or being right with having value or being loved. We've got to get those separated in our minds, especially in this area. How easy would it be for you to confess, confess that you were wrong in, in, in any of your regular relationships if you knew when you confessed, the other person would respond by saying, I just love you so much. You are so important to me. You have immense value in my eyes. How easy would it be to admit that you were wrong if you knew the other person would respond like that? That's how easy it should be to confess to God. And remember, even in our broken human relationships, admitting that we are wrong builds intimacy, while digging our heels in erodes intimacy. So wouldn't we want to build intimacy with someone like God? someone who has steadfast love for us? Wouldn't we want to be as close to him as we could possibly get? Why would we ever resist intimacy with someone like him by trying to hold on to the illusion that we are right or innocent or that we can make up for what we've done? Why would we put a gap in between us and someone as amazing as him? Let's just admit that we have inequity, that we have guilt that we can't make up for. And at the same time, at the same time, have utter bulletproof confidence that God's love for us never wavers. That he has a never stopping, never giving up, always and forever love for us. And that is what gives us value. That, his love for us, is what gives us worth, even in the midst of our inequity. Do you hear God's steadfast love for you, even in spite of you? Or do you think you need to justify yourself in order to be accepted? Do you think you need to hide and make excuses for your inequities? Or can you freely admit them, knowing that when you do, your acceptance is assured? Okay, uh, third, the prize of repentance. The prize of repentance. We've been alluding to this all along, talking about confession builds intimacy while digging our heels in or arguing for our innocence will erode intimacy. So you could, you could probably guess that the prize of repentance has something to do with intimacy. But let's be specific. The reward for repentance, the prize of repentance is we get God. We get God himself. Just like when there's guilt between us and another person and then we are reconciled to them through repentance and forgiveness, what do we get? What do we get out of that? What do we receive? We get the person. We are restored to each other. That is the reward. 
the psalmist here longs for God himself. Verse 5 and 6, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. My soul waits for the Lord. More than watchman for the morning. More than watchman for the morning. He wants God. That's what he wants. He's not repenting so that he'll get heaven or prosperity or healing. He wants God. The reward is connection with, intimacy with God. Again, just like in our relationships, when we confess and apologize to someone, we are looking for healing between them and us in the relationship. Or at least that's what we should want. We should want them. If we're confessing and apologizing in order to get something else, we really haven't confessed or apologized yet. So like when our kids fight with each other, they're six and nine, right? And then Beth and I put them in timeout. And one of the outcomes we want to see when we put them in timeout is for them to say that they are sorry for hurting the other one, right? But then what did they actually say? What did, they, what did you actually say when you were put in timeout, right? It's, I'm sorry, can I get out of timeout now? Right? Or if I say I'm sorry, can I still have a treat after dinner? I, I don't think so. Because uh, you don't really seem to care that you've hurt your brother. Right? It seems like the only reason you're saying I'm sorry is so you can get out of timeout or you can get a treat. It doesn't seem to matter to you that he's upset and your relationship needs to be healed. Like, do you care about that? Yeah, sure, I care about that. Right? You... You haven't apologized if that's where you're at. And we all understand that because we all either have kids or we've been a kid and our parents said the exact same thing to us, right? So it's worth checking ourselves. When we say, I'm sorry to God, is our goal to be with God, to get God? Or do we want something else? Do we think if we say, I'm sorry, he'll let us out of time out and he'll finally give us a career breakthrough or a romantic interest, we'll get our treat, are we after the treat? Do we think we can manipulate him so he'll give us something we want? Or do we just want him? It's worth checking ourselves. Okay, lastly, the cost of redemption. The cost of redemption. Some of you might be wondering, so, if I apologize to God, um, I can get intimacy with him just like that. Just like that. What about everything I've done? Doesn't seem like he could receive me back after the life I've lived without some kind of penalty, without some kind of timeout. Don't I have to pay something? Earn something back? Uh, you're partially right. There is a cost. There is. But God pays it, not you. God pays it. The cost of redemption is the cross. Remember the question, if you, O Lord, should mark inequities, who could stand? And the answer was, none of us can stand. All of us have inequities such that we could not stand before God. But there was one and only one who could stand, who had no inequities. Jesus Christ lived the life we should have lived, a perfect life with no need for forgiveness or restoration or redemption. He could stand before God with no guilt whatsoever. But he lowered himself, and on the cross he bore our inequities, Isaiah 53. Though he was guiltless, he became sin for us, 2 Corinthians 5.21. And he did that 
so that we who have sin, us who have sin, we can now stand guiltless before God. So again, the question, if you, O Lord, should mark inequities, who could stand? The final answer is everyone in Christ can stand. Everyone in Christ. We can approach his throne with confidence, Hebrews 4.16. We can stand before him because we have been redeemed. The hope of the psalmist has been fulfilled. With the Lord, there is plentiful redemption. And it has happened. Because Christ was lowered, we can rise and have total, complete confidence of our acceptance always through his sacrifice on our behalf. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you provided a way that we can stand before you, even though we have guilt, Lord. A guiltless one took our guilt upon him so that we could stand as if we were innocent before you. We know that we have been reconciled by the cost of the cross to you. Um, Lord, we pray that you would be our greatest treasure, that we would want you, that we would want to be with you, that we would want intimacy with you and not any treat that you can give us. Um, Let that be the desire and cry of our hearts, Lord, and may fear be gone and our hope sure that your love uh, is with us forevermore. Um, We pray those things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Well, one of the pictures that Jesus uh, has given the church to represent uh, his sacrifice on our behalf is communion. Um, And here at Bridges, we take communion, uh, traditionally the first Sunday of the month, and that is today. Uh, So before we take communion, I would just remind you or offer our explanation of communion that we do not believe that taking uh, these elements, as the church has called them for so long, forgives us in any way. The, the, the cup and the bread do not buy us forgiveness. They are reminders of what did buy us forgiveness, which was Christ's work and sacrifice on our behalf. Scripture tells us uh, when we take communion to not take it um, in an unworthy manner. But that does not mean that we need to be clean or have ourselves fixed up uh, before we take communion. If that was the case, we would never take it. Um, what it means is that we take it acknowledging that Christ has been our sacrifice in our place to reconcile us to God. So there are um, ushers at various corners of the room, and you can uh, get up. David's going to play in just a second, and you can get up and uh, make your way to one of these communion tables um, and return to your seat, and then I will come back up, and we will all take communion together.
On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he met with his uh, disciples one final time for a final meal. And after the meal, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body given for you. Then he took the cup and he said, this is my blood of the New Testament poured out for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you eat of this bread or drink of this cup, do it in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Um, Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for communion as a reminder to us of his sacrifice on our behalf. Um, you made such a simple symbol with uh, elements, ingredients that are available in every culture of the world so that we can all know that Jesus died for all of us um, in our place. Um, every nation, tribe, and tongue uh, can confess that Jesus is Lord. Um, Lord, we pray that we would be united in him as a congregation. Um, communion implies community. Um, may we be bound together by what we have in common, uh, which is you. Uh, we pray those things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing a marvelous song, Lord, I Need You, and I would ask you to stand with us.
and also send in your sermon questions. Um, but remember this week to say you're sorry, right? That's a good, good way to start the week. I was reading uh, in my devotional this week, and uh, it just struck me this morning when Dan was talking, this, this phrase is, if you're God's child, when you sin, you can run towards God and not away from him because you know you have full acceptance. Sounds like what saying I'm sorry is all about, right? When you've done wrong, you know you're accepted, admit it. <laughs> And we know that it's what we do with the Lord, too. Um, you have an opportunity to run towards God and obey him through baptism. We're having a service on July 31st. Now, you, if you were here early, I'll tell you, you get the good announcements if you're early. Like, you get Dan telling you what I'm going to tell you. You get videos of what's happening on July 31st. But if you come late, you just get me talking about it. But it's a reminder, if you came early or late, that we have a service not here on July 31st, but at Seabright Beach in Santa Cruz. Um, and we'd like to baptize one or two of you or all, all of you who need it. And it's an opportunity to follow the Lord in, in uh, obedience. I'll tell you about my experience. You can get baptized up here. We'd love to see people get baptized up here. You can get baptized where else? Anywhere there's water, I guess. But if there isn't water, you can use dust. I know that's happened too. But in my case, I got baptized in the backyard in a swimming pool. Um, and I was 14 years old, and it had been a decade since I had confessed Christ, but it was a point where I really committed publicly to him in front of a bunch of people and admitted that God could take care of everything and I could run for him to him for acceptance. So if you want to get wet in salt water, let's do it on July 31st. But really it's an act of obedience, telling the Lord, I stand with you. Thank you for what you've done. So if you want to do that, you can get a hold of me, you can get a hold of Dan, anybody on staff. Let us know so we can plan for that on July 31st. All right? So with that, go and enjoy your freedom in Christ and enjoy your freedom in being an American citizen or even living here tomorrow. All right? Bye-bye.